3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to Elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on 3CR on Thursday breakfast, 8.55am. It is just gone 7.02 and I, am, I believe it's the 10th of February. And I'm in the studio with Inez and Priya and we have Malika on the line. Good morning, everybody. Hopefully you're all there. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, we're all here. The suspense, the suspense. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I mean, look, at least we all politely waited for the next person to say good morning so that it wasn't <laughs> just one, like, distorted, hey! I mean, you know, that, that was stressful for me, but I guess that's good for the listeners. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, it's good for anybody who's going to chop up this audio of our introductions and play it back, I guess. Um, yeah. So, so exciting to be with everybody today. Yeah. Um, it's been it's been a difficult time, um, as you know, with the religious discrimination bill and all of this nonsense happening at the moment in Parliament. But it's lovely to be able to connect with some wonderful folks uh, here to talk about things that we care about and amplify issues that are important and that we should be keeping an eye on. Yeah, totally. And also, um, yesterday uh, I was at the um, SNAP Action at the State Library, and it was really good to see... Um, a really massive turnout considering that how quickly that action was called um, and yeah just to be around community and um, you know um, see that that there is uh, resistance and fight against this bill even if um, you know people feel completely abandoned by the government and opposition in relation to this bill. Yeah I mean I guess we'll We'll see how things progress through the Senate, but um, hopefully we can bring you some good news this time next week. Um, but yeah, what have we got on for today? Pretty big show, huh? Yeah, big show. So first up, um, I spoke with Josie Alec, a Guruma Madhu Thurnia custodian from the Pilbara in Western Australia. Um, and she joined me earlier this week to speak about the ongoing destruction of rock art and country and country on Murujuga or the Burrup Peninsula and the federal government's recent announcement of a $255 million loan to support the development of the Pertama urea plant on that sacred country. Yeah. Um, and after that, I am going to be speaking with Asher Wolf, who's a freelance columnist, activist, and general rabble-rouser who's joining us to talk about the lack of recognition of and support for chronic illnesses such as myalgic encephalomyelitis or chronic fatigue syndrome and how this intersects with growing awareness of long COVID, which also um, has a significant fatigue component, component in um, symptoms that people are reporting. And then we'll be joined by Deborah Nicol, who is the Elder Rights Advocacy Program Manager. Following the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety 2018-21, to the federal government is transitioning to a different model of service provision. Deborah will speak on the recent local council changes to home age and disability care services and what these changes mean for service users, workers and the aged care sector. And by Sasha and Greg from Blockade Australia to speak about climate activism. 
Sasha has been doing climate, anti-war and human rights activism for the last three years and has found her niche in supporting direct action has, and has also been arrested for the cause. Greg is a full-time supporter of Frontline Nonviolent Direct Action and he is currently supporting Blockade Australia who used we seek to use strategic non-violent resistance to the colonial extraction project called Australia. And then finally, we'll be speaking with David Lindenmeyer, a professor at the Fenner School of Environment and Society at ANU, and he's an expert in forest ecology and resource management, conservation science and biodiversity conservation. And David's joining us today to discuss the science behind why the Victorian government must put an end to native forest logging. Wow, well, very, very full show this week, and I'm really excited to hear all of those interviews. Now, just before we uh, hop on to headlines, I want to remind people that 3CR's subscriber drive is happening this month, and it starts next week. But if you want to get in early, you can head to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. And, yeah, become a part of this community or renew your subscription and support Radical Radio. That's awesome. Um, before headlines, we'll just go to a quick CSA. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're back on Thursday breakfast, and now I believe we're going to go to the headlines, Malika. Yeah, so these are the headlines for Thursday the 10th of February. With Federal Parliament back in session this week, deals to push through the deeply flawed religious discrimination bill are again being debated. Laws that allow schools to dismiss staff and exclude students on the basis of sexual orientation were removed in the last round of deals, but that move does not include trans and gender diverse staff and students. Labor politicians say they will fight for further protections when the bill reaches the Senate, leaving many asking why the bill was not blocked in the first place. Trans and gender diverse people whose voices have not been centred in the debate say the bill is discriminatory and will cause significant harm for LGBTQIA plus people. In other news, the Victorian Parliamentary Inquiry is set to investigate the influence of far-right extremism in the state. The inquiry will explore the risks that far-right extremist groups pose to people, especially Victoria's multicultural communities, the potential violence of these movements and the links between extremist groups and the anti-vaccine misinformation. The committee conducting the investigation will report back to Parliament at the end of May. Also in Victoria, elders' rights advocates say changes to the way aged and disability care services are provided in Mildura Rural City Council could be confusing and overwhelming for some of those receiving care. As a result of a federally imposed move to a fee-for-service model, Mildura Council says it is not viable to continue providing services past June 2023, meaning those receiving care will need to shift to the new model. And finally, analysis from a coalition of human rights organisations, church groups and academics has found that some of Australia's largest companies are failing to comply with modern slavery laws. A new report released this week reveals that three-quarters of companies have failed to meet legal reporting requirements. More than half have failed to identify modern slavery risks in supply chains, and less than one-third took action to address risks identified. 
The report noted that more than 40 million people around the world experiencing modern slavery, out of which 15,000 of them are in Australia. These have been the headlines for Thursday, the 10th of February, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Thank you so much, Malika. Um, I just wanted to, if, if nobody minds, quickly just touch on um, some, of the, some of the issues from the headlines, maybe starting with that most recent one. So I'd be really keen to read that report because I think when we're thinking about labor exploitation and modern slavery, I'm hoping that we're touching on, for example, the ongoing labor exploitation of uh, you know, Pacific Island workers that are doing uh, seasonal work. And, you know, we saw in Parliament um, a lot of really powerful testimony about the horrible treatment of workers in the in the agricultural industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but also thinking about things like work for the doll programs where people are working for, you know, 40 cents an hour, for example, um, doing hard manual labor um, without any of the protections that are afforded uh, under the law to workers. So it's really important, I guess, to have a capacious understanding of labor exploitation when we're talking about this concept of modern slavery in Australia. Yeah, absolutely, Priya. Um, Before we go into the first interview, did you want to discuss any of the other headlines? Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to, just on the religious discrimination bill, you know, as we've seen now, it has passed the House Mm -hmm. and it's in the hands of the Senate. Um, Labor's plan is to hopefully... Um, get their amendments sorted in the Senate. Otherwise, I think the plan is to knock it back to the House. But, um, you know, understandably, this has caused a lot of pain, a lot of frustration for trans and gender diverse people and uh, for the queer community at large. And it's important not to understate the impact that this public conversation has on the LGBTQIA plus community regardless of whether this bill passes or not. You know, we saw around the gay marriage debate the the massive, you know, harm and vitriol that was spewed against uh, against queer people um, in conservative media, but also, you know, from government quarters. Um, and even though that, you know, that passed, uh, right now we're seeing something similar where uh, trans youth are being used as a political football. And, you know, I just want to extend my solidarity to... You know, I'm not sure how many young trans people are listening at the moment, but as a slightly older trans person, but definitely um, not uh, not uh, trying to say that I've got a huge amount of wisdom and experience. I just want to let you know that you are loved, you're seen, um, people care about you, your community cares about you, and, um, you know, please don't give up. There are ways that you can access support, whether it be through Q Life or, you know, any local support services. And I'll come up with a list and read that out later too. Yeah. Thanks so much, Priya. Um, All right. We'll go into this first interview now. So um, this is a conversation that I had with Josie Alec, a Gurama Madhusernira custodian from the Pilbara in Western Australia. And Josie joined me earlier in the week to speak about the ongoing destruction of rock art and country on Murujuga or the Barat Peninsula and the federal government's recent announcement of a $255 million loan to support the development of the Perdamon urea plant on that country. Good morning and thank you so much for joining us this morning, Josie. I was just wondering if to begin you could introduce yourself for listeners. My name's Josie Alec and I'm a Gurama Manasuni, a traditional owner uh, in the northwest of uh, Australia in the Pilbara. 
Thank you so much. So um, today we're speaking because the federal government recently announced a $255 million loan to support the development of the Perdaman Urea plant on Murujuga or Barat Peninsula. Um, and before we speak about the plant and also the demands of traditional owners, could you just describe that place and the rock art um, and why it's so important? So the rock art is, uh, is basically our connection, um, it, you know, one of the connections to our country. It holds a law and culture uh, and, um, you know, a guidance for, you know, our people um, from, you know, years, many, many years ago. Um, and it, it's been there for, um, you know, through the evolution of the world um, many times. So it, uh, it is, you know, it's... It's a total connection. Um, it's you know our you know our sacred um, culture, which is you know just like going people actually going to church. That's our religion. That's our culture. That's everything that we are. So um, the rocks basically are, are you know connected to to our people, to Mother Earth, and it, it holds that connection to our lineage. Mm, beautiful, yeah. Thank you. Um, so the site has actually been shortlisted for UNESCO World Heritage Protection, and I also believe that this federal government even supported that um, listing. But, you know, the rock art, the plants, country in general are already being destroyed by heavy, uh, heavy industry in the area. So I was just wondering if you could describe for listeners um, what is happening to the rock art and to Murujuga landscape. So over the years, and it's, uh, there's been very many, you know, test, testing um, that that has proven that, uh, you know, the the desecration of the rock art uh, is is um, is actually happening, and it is, um, you know, by the chemicals that are coming out of the the, um, the gas plant and um, the other plants and and industry that are on Murujuga uh, at the moment um, already. So. You know, over the years, these are already been based, if you would like to say. So, you know, um, it's like an invisible graffiti uh, uh, that that they're doing, and and you know, um, the the uh, it's yeah, it's very it's very it's so sad that you know that it is a part of it should be world heritage listed already. Um, and I, I don't understand how the government can, you know, actually, on one hand, go and sign deals saying, yes, this will be World Heritage listed, and then the other hand, go and give, you know, millions, over $200 million to start a urea factory there, right on the spot. Um, in the spot that they, just to give you listeners a bit of context, is, context is that in the spot that they want to do it, there are some major, major sites there for our people, uh, and you know they, they are ancestral sites, and um, you know it, it, I just don't understand how they think that they can come and move these rocks from where they've been for over centuries, and um, and then you know and, and move them, and uh, that's okay when it should be touched in the first place. Absolutely. Yeah, there's so much um, about what, you know, what you're saying there about what's already going on, about the need for protection of this site. Um, 
and then also about the complete kind of contradiction of saying you, as a government, um, support the protection of this site whilst at the same time um, financially supporting these projects and, and in the rhetoric that they're talking about these projects as well. Um, so traditional owners like yourself have been clear that they do not support this urea project. Um, I think the, you know, the, the more to the fact is that this is an ongoing issue since the 60s and um, the government don't know how to backpedal now and say they made a mistake back then that, you know, putting, putting this port in and putting this access uh, right on these hills on a on on the the the, the borough itself with the with all of the rock art there. Um, so you know it's basically it's it's like a, it's like a cover up. It's like I oh, will just like pretend it's not actually there. We'll blow it up. We'll just put industry on there so nobody remembers that anything was there. But our old people remember, and our ancestors remember, our bloodlines remember, and the songlines never end up ever end. The songlines belong to Mother Earth, and those songlines that we talk about are the, have those connections to all the rock art throughout all the world, you know. And this is this is one of the you know this is one of the um, like this, one of the start of the Seven Sisters dreaming stories, and and it goes right through everywhere, like and it's it's a story for everybody for humanity, and it's a creation story that people don't understand. They're actually everybody's actually. Um, connected to so um the, the thing is is i don't understand how they can put more emissions out there and um because these these two companies if they if they uh well if woodside expand and and you know put put their big urea plant on you know very very sacred sites uh then it's not only um you know they're, they're tearing up sacred sites and being disrespectful to you know the oldest living culture in the world but they are also, um, you know, they're also spreading emissions that are going to go higher than what the UN have, you know, have, um, you know, than, that have said said anybody in the world can. And it's right here in Australia they're doing this. I, you know, when we've already, you know, they've already agreed that the emissions in the world need to start to change for the safety of every human being. Um, the thing for me is that I do, I'm a traditional healer and also I do bush medicine, so. Um, a lot of the, the, the thing that worried me the most was that I've been, uh, you know, many years and collecting bush medicine and, you know, I just had to stop collecting it from there because the, it's, it's, it's been contaminated by all of the, you know, all of the um, chemicals that are coming off there. You've um, nitrate dioxide and you've got sulphate dioxide, which is, you know, sulphate dioxide has, uh, you know, a couple, quite a few chemicals within the whole compound. So... Um, and, and those are hitting, they're, they're hitting the air daily basis and they're hitting those rocks constantly on a daily basis. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's, you know, and, they, and the air actually, you know, comes over and it's actually affecting people here. Um, you know, I have friends and I'm sort of who walks, who works in a, the health system here and the hospitals can't cope at the moment with, you know, the amount of, um, respiratory problems and, um, you know, and, and cancer problems that are happening up here, you know. So a lot of locals need first is to get, you know, get well because of the, you know, and, and that is one factor that, um, you know, that, that people who are quite healthy have heard of it. People who are healthy, who are, who've never drank, who've never smoked in their life, who've, 
they said, all of a sudden got cancer. How did they get cancer? When, you know, what is the factor? It's the environment. And so, basically, we want to clean this environment up. So it's not only, you know, and it's not only about the health system that won't be able to handle, you know, anything up here. The climate change, you know, we just had a 50-degree day um, in the Pilbara here. 50 degrees is, you know, that's enough to, you know, burn 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 a lot of things, but just imagine the plants and animals. Um, I, I also, you know, doing the bush medicine and, um, you know, the, the animals also hold, you know, connection to the sunlight, to the earth, to, to the sea, to everything. And so, um, you know, we, it's disrupting, it's disrupting their life force as well. Um, you know, we talk about, you know, poisoning, um, poisoning the ground, poisoning the, the sea, um, what these emissions are doing as well. So, I mean, it's, it's bad enough, um, you know, we see, we see it already and we, we're in a place where, you know, it's pretty, pretty barren and it's very hot all the time. Um, we don't get a lot of rain and, you know, we've just seen floods all around us. We had one day yesterday of rain, um, you know, and it was just, it was just, one big rain and then it was gone. We 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 don't get rain here, and that's unnatural. You know, mm. the ecosystem is something wrong with it. And um, yeah, when you see the plants that are, I mean, I, I noticed the plants myself. Actually, you know, they're 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 totally out of balance with how they should be growing, growing. You know, many years ago uh, in the country, and now they're not growing the same way, or they're not growing. You know, they're not getting the same water supply. Mm. Uh, or there's something happening under the ground that they're not growing anymore. You know, what actually, you know, we can see physically and, and we, what we feel as well. Yeah, thank you. Uh, your answer just then, Josie, Josie, was just so, I mean, there's so much in there in terms of um, both the history of, like, the government's history of, like, how they ended up at this point and the path that they're kind of committing to going on even no matter what they say. And then also, yeah, the history of that place and its ongoing um you know, importance as this cultural site and just, yeah, the effects that all of this is just so connected because, as you say, it's Woodside who would be supplying the gas for the Perdamon, um urea plant and um, creating these emissions in the process, which absolutely is connected to climate change. And then, yeah, of course, like, if something is in the air kind of um, affecting rock or, like, kind of, yeah, causing erosion in rock, through a chemical process, I'm sure that breathing in that air is not going to be good for the people living there either. And, and that's right. And there's also the well-being of the people that are actually working out there. I mean, yeah, fair enough. The company gives you money, gives you a good wage. You know, you can get all the stuff that you need. But what what's good all stuff is if company's actually killing you while you're working there. Mm. Uh, you know, wouldn't you rather be working in a company, you know, that producing the same thing but doing it in a different way without the emissions with zero emissions you know we need um with, you know even if they wouldn't it, i mean to start to go to work and do you know to instill that into your children that you know to, to look after the country to go green to do you know to use green energy instead of all you know instead of um tools that they're doing now it's just ridiculous and the way the world is changing and we, we don't want to stay in that old that old industrial, you know, revolutionary stage. We need to evolve as well as people, as human beings on Mother Earth, and we need to start connecting and, um, you know, really opening our hearts and 
feeling, feeling, um, you know, feeling exactly, uh, you know, what everything she has to offer. And I think there's a lot that Mother Earth has to offer people. And, you know, that's, you know, that's how we feel. But we can't keep on desecrating ancient, ancient history because that history holds the keys to our future. Mm. Yeah, I mean, just on that, you know, sadly, Murujuga is not the only case of destruction of sacred land by mining and other industries across this continent. Like, we know of what happened at Chukun Gorge, and only the other day, um, Gamilare people and their supporters were protesting against fracking by Santos on their country. So I was just wondering if you wanted to comment on the way that, you know, this destruction keeps happening, um, even though governments do say they're committed to protecting country. Because they're all linked. You know, they, 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 they do a gas project left up and down this country, up and down this coast. They do fracking to, you know, to go and do their supplies and, and however they do it. But they're going to have to frack in these particular places. I know the, the Kimberley mob don't want it. I know the Geraldton mob don't want it. You know, the, the Murchison that. And it, all for what? For, you know, for this, this destruction and desecration of the country. Um, it's, it's not fair on her and it's not fair on us. Mm. So um, finally, Josie, just before we run out of time, I was wondering if you could update us on what the next steps for opposing this plant are for you and what listeners can do to help amplify your voices and follow what's happening. Um, we want to start to bring together all the guys, um, like even the guys with the Adani um, project that they're sitting out there, you know, on country. You know, um, you know, we want to sort of support all all of us and support each other around, you know, ha- teaching people how sacred this is and teaching people, you know, and and, and ch- trying to get un- other people to understand this is why this is so important to everybody. So, I think um, if if people can jump on Facebook and just look up Save Us Online, Save the Bar Up, we're there. We've got lots of information on there about our project and why we're doing this. Great, thank you. Um, so, so much for joining us this morning. Goongar Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. You're back on Thursday breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And just before that CSA, um, you heard a conversation that I had with Josie Alec, a Gurma Madhusunara custodian from the Pilbara in Western Australia. And she was speaking to me about the ongoing destruction of rock art um, and country on Murujuga and the federal government's recent announcement of a $255 million loan to support the development of the Perdaman urea plant on sacred country. 
All right. Thank you so much for that, Rosie. And I did mention before we went to that interview uh, that there are some resources that you are able to access if you are a member of the LGBTQ plus community um, and you're struggling at this time with what's going on around the religious discrimination bill. So nationally, you can call QLife um, or visit QLife.org.au to access their web, cha- a web chat from 3 p.m. to midnight every day. And you can contact them on one 800 184-527. That's 1-800-184-527. In Victoria, you can contact Rainbow Door on 1-800-729-367. That's 1-800-729-367. And they're available from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. seven days a week. You can call them. You can text them. And you can also email them. Uh, so you can text them on 480 uh, 017-246 and email them at support at rainbowdoor.org.au and just a reminder if this is sort of an emergency situation um, you can always call 1-800-RESPECT and that's a National Family Violence and Sexual Assault helpline and Safe Steps in Victoria which is a Family Violence and Response Service 24-hour telephone line and you can call Safe Steps on 1-800-015-188 so now we're going to go to an interview with Asher Wolf, who's an activist, freelance columnist, and general rabble-rouser who's joining us today to speak about the lack of recognition of and support for chronic illnesses such as myalgic encephalomyelitis or chronic fatigue syndrome and how this intersects with growing awareness of long COVID. Asher, thanks so much for speaking with us today. Thanks for having me on, Priya. Not a problem. So um, before we kick it off, would you like to introduce yourself in a little more detail so listeners know where you're speaking from? Sure. Um, I'm speaking from Bangarang land, um, Langarada, and I acknowledge the um, leaders past, present, and future um, from Bangarang land. Um, I'm, um, yeah, uh, speaking from my living room. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you also... Um, expressed an interest in talking about uh, some of these issues because you've got a lived experience um, of chronic illness. And, you know, did you want to speak to that, um, I guess, in as much or a little detail as you sure. like? Yeah. So I was diagnosed quite late with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and then with uh, a rafter of, like, other illnesses and conditions. Um, some of those things include autism, um, autoimmune progesterone anaphylaxis, and chronic fatigue is very, very common as part of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome because um, of chronic pain in the condition. Um, it was one of those things that was like, oh, yes, too bad, um, and I was never actually formally treated for chronic fatigue. Um, one of the other conditions that I was never formally treated for that was acknowledged was an issue was called postural orthostatic tachycardia, mm-hmm. um, which is a form of dysautonomia. And people who um, develop COVID, long COVID in particular, um, much like Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, will find that a number of these conditions that they may potentially develop are multisystemic, um, which makes it very difficult to treat, um, not just because it means running to different specialists, but also because we have huge waiting lists. So we're operating in a world where, you know, we're told, yes, world-class universal Medicare system, uh, health system, 
But for many people, um, they're just not getting the care that they need because the reality is chronic health conditions aren't treated particularly well in our health system. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And I guess that leads very well into into the question that I was going to ask you about how people with chronic conditions that are generally sort of deprioritized in the medical community and by extension in public policy have experienced navigating the world before COVID and some of the challenges around diagnosis and access to support. I guess it starts with diagnosis and diagnosis is often delayed um, and with long COVID, particularly as many, many people missed out on formal diagnosis. Um, lots of people couldn't get a PCR test. Lots of people couldn't um, find a rat. Um, lots of people won't have formal diagnosis of having COVID, um, which then becomes an issue when you say, well, uh, I have long COVID or, um, you know, will that be accepted by an insurance company? Will that lead to... Um, some form of supports. When we talk about disability, um, it's not necessarily the condition itself that's disabling. Quite often it's the lack of supports and that's structural and that's a decision made in a capitalist and colonialist society. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we've seen with um, the way that you know, the the prohibitive nature of access to programs like the NDIS and to um, adequate welfare payments um, and to the disability support pension in particular that, you know, as you've mentioned, people haven't been able to access this diagnosis. And so then how are they able to access those supports? And of course, around the NDIS, there are a lot of issues in terms of supporting people with chronic illness anyway. Um, did you want to touch on any of that? Yeah, so... Um Quite often people with chronic illnesses don't end up on the NDIS and they end up being sent back to the state public system. Um, some of the wait lists for um, specialist support are immense. Uh, take, for instance, dysautonomia, um, so postural orthostatic tachycardia. If you're looking to see a specialist in the public system currently in Victoria, you're looking at a four-year wait. Um, you know, And I can talk about that from personal experience because I've had to have a referral re-raised a couple of times with a, with a GP just to get on a wait list and stay on a wait list for treatment um, and I'm still on a wait list. <laughs> and now we're flooding the system even more with people who are going to need support and it's also the shock to them. You know, over the last five or six years, there's been a real movement around um, chronic illness community online where people have shared ways of coping, ways of trying to access treatment. And it's, it's really a form of mutual support within um, a broken system. But what we're seeing is, is this influx of, I guess what you'd call chronic illness newbies <laughs> who have got no support mm -hmm. and a completely new theory around, you know, how to cope with chronic illness or what treatment or good treatment should look like and what your rights are as a patient or a person with disability. And, and that's really tough. A lot of them are going through a form of grief mm. for their old life. You know, they used to get up and do whatever they did, went to work, go for a bike ride. Um, <laughs> and some of those things aren't possible right now for them mm. because of illness. Yeah. And, um, 
I think what you've touched on there, the the sort of grief and, and processing of realizing and coming to terms with the fact that your body, uh, you know, is not responding in the way that you're used to. Um, you, you mentioned when we were talking about this previously that um, a large number of people will now l- need to learn how to adjust to being disabled. Um, and disability activists have described COVID-19 as a mass disabling effect, effect um, sorry, event. And I'm wondering if you have seen the public conversation and government priorities shifting at all with the, this kind of realization. Um, you know, I can kind of predict what you might respond with, but um, especially because we've also seen disability justice advocates talk about the really harmful effects of letting it rip. Yeah, I think the most dominant narrative that we've seen as disability activists has been eugenics from perspective of governments. Really, it's a a decision not to ensure that people with disability and older Australians and um, people who um, really need support are ensured that they get the support that they need, the vaccines on time, the the supports to isolate when they need to isolate to stay safe. Um, I think that, um, yeah, that we've we've entered a realm where... uh, We've devalued human lives, or maybe that's always been the case because of the way in which we've been set up. But now it's really pushed to the forefront with uh, with where we're heading. Um, The response seems to be one of, um, if we shove it all under the table, maybe people will improve, maybe people will get better, Um, maybe we won't have to deal with with this public health issue and, and a crisis, really. Um, which is that we have public health systems that are completely overwhelmed, wait lists that aren't coping, wait lists that, you know, we've seen, like rheumatology, um, cancelled, you know, just cancelled thousands of people off their lists in the public health system during COVID. Um, and we don't know when those lists will resume for many patients. We don't know if many people will end up getting treatment. And even if you look at the private system, there are many months late for rheumatology in the private system as well. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. I, I mean, it is, it's just, um, it's appalling to see this, um, this trade-off that's been made between the lives of disabled people and also people that are in the process of becoming disabled through the pandemic um, and, you know, corporate interests, uh, big business revenue generation. Um, it is it, it is just really, I don't know, heartbreaking, appalling to fathom that some people um, are still in our communities, locked in their houses, unable to leave in self-imposed lockdown, um, but also unable to access the medical care that they need and the supports that they need as well. Um, I wonder... What would it mean to view the pandemic from a disability justice lens, both re- with respect to the government's approach and with regard to it being a, a mass disabling event? I think it would mean taking a more holistic approach to what is um, public health, um, rather than viewing it as this is just for a short-term period, looking at um, the flow-on effects of decisions made. Um, you know, if the constant harping on about how some politicians 
are claiming that Omicron is mild. We know that even mild illnesses can cause um, great issues down the track and um, we should be taking all the actions that we can to ensure that people don't get COVID to begin with, um, which we, we, we haven't, to be honest. Mm. And um, that, you know, once people are diagnosed, they actually do get diagnosed for a start and that there are a pathways for treatment um, that exist. You know, we are now over two years into into COVID and we're not seeing pathways for people to, to get real follow-up and treatment long-term with long COVID as here in Australia particularly. Um, it's just that complete abandonment, I guess you could call it, of um, of people in the public health system. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that we're we're not moving towards a place that that ensures that people will get the supports they need. Yeah, and I mean, I guess my my final question here is: Where can people find out more about? current disability justice organizing and potentially get involved in so-called Australia, considering that this is something that really, you know, it's been needing urgent action. Um, people need to jump on this as, as as many people and as quickly as possible. Yeah. Um, so here in Australia, you'd be looking at people with disability Australia or um, women with disability Australia, um, which also includes non-binary people. Um and really, just in general, looking out for other people online that are experiencing the same um, experience of, of chronic illness and and really talking about it because most people think that maybe they're the exception to the cause when it comes to poor service and poor supports. But the reality is it's, it's the common experience for most people and it's not how things are supposed to be. Mm. Um yeah, and we can do better by people. Yeah, absolutely. And if, if the the Disability Royal Commission has shown us anything, it's that these experiences, um, you know, of, of disabled people being um, pushed aside, of uh, poor supports being provided, of a lack of support, um, these are all so common and repeat themselves over and over again. And once you see the systemic nature of it, it becomes quite clear that this needs to be fought at every turn. So, Asher, thank you so, so much for making the time, for sharing your own experiences and for sharing your knowledge about this with us. Thank you for having me on, Chris. All right. And we were just joined by Asher Wolf, activist, freelance columnist and general rabble-rouser who spoke with us about the lack of recognition of and support for chronic illnesses such as myalgic encephalomyelitis or chronic fatigue syndrome and how this is intersecting with growing awareness of long COVID. And I just wanted to quickly plug the Disability Justice Network, which is an amazing mutual net, mutual aid network operating across so-called Australia, um, you know, providing support to disabled folks um, and making sure that people aren't getting left behind when it, they're accessing, uh, when they need to access some of these essential supports during this time. But also just a reminder that they have limited capacity and so donating to them, amplifying their work, every little helps because they can't be expected to do the work of NDIS support coordinators and cover all of the gaps um, in our failing public health system. So again, shout out to Disability Justice Network and you're on Thursday Breakfast, 3CR, 855 AM. 
And following on from this, we are to joined by Deborah Nicholl, the Programs Manager for Elder Rights Advocacy, which is a member of the Older Persons Advocacy Network. Thank you so much for joining us here today on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Good morning and thank you for having me. Thank you for being up <laughs> so early. I, we do appreciate it so much. Oh, oh no, I'm up early. <laughs> <laughs> um, wonderful. Well, I maybe just thought that we would touch on um, why I got in contact with you in the first place is because we saw the ABC article in which you speak on council changes to home age and disability care services. And I know the article in question references Mildura Rules City Council, but would you mind speaking on how local councils are interlinked with service provision for home age and disability care services, particularly what the new funding model from the uh, federal government means for these services? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, uh, thank you, Ines. Um, I think local is the key word here. Um, you know, councils know what the local issues are. Uh, they understand the environment and the conditions that can affect service provision to older people. They're often uh, a trusted and known um, organisation, of course, by community who have been working with them for years. Um, and importantly, they have been able to respond and be a little more flexible in meeting the diverse needs of community. And flexibility, particularly in aged care, is very, very important. Yes. So I guess, you know, that's where, where councils have um, really come to the fore uh, and, and filled a, a space that private aged care providers just may not be able to. Yeah, it sounds like local councils have been able to um, fill in a lot of the cracks and been able to provide really great um, flexible services for people that really need it, when, especially when their day-to-day needs will change from yes, yeah, day-to-day. No, that's, <laughs> um, yeah, that's it. It's that flexibility in there that yeah. they've, they've had and that we have noticed because uh, changes to the delivery of, of home supports and home care packages, uh, that they have been happening over a period of time yeah. and so we've seen the effects of those changes. And unfortunately, we've seen things become very rigid and inflexible. Yes. Um, I think following on from that, inflexibility, I can imagine that these changes might feel overwhelming and potentially distressing for service users, especially with having to, you know, possibly shop around for providers. Uh, I guess, given the new model, what supports do you believe that should be in place to prevent people from falling through the cracks? Mm-hmm. Look, we, we do already have uh, some supports in place. Uh, certainly at Elder Rights Advocacy, we have a specialist navigator service. Mm-hmm. Um, it's currently a trial and uh, with a view to possibly going to care finders, which is uh, something that was recommended by the Royal Commission. Um, But our navigator uh, service provides assistance and information for older people and their representatives who need help to enter the aged care system. Mm -hmm. It's not that easy. You know, it's fairly complex. Um, So we'll stand beside people from sign up with my aged care to choosing a provider to entering into an agreement, a contract with that provider, uh, developing a care plan. And, uh, you know, we just know what questions to ask and, and can help people through that process. Uh, the NACAP advocates at ERA uh, have always been able to provide this service and have done so. Navigator only operates in certain areas. Um, so, yeah, there are supports already in place. Um, 
The other thing is, of course, information on your rights is empowering. If you know what questions to ask, if you know what your rights are, then you feel a lot more confident to enter into these sort of negotiations. Um, so, so, yes, uh, you know, there's help out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but is there sufficient help out there? Is it available in all areas easily? No. Yeah. Not at the moment. Not at the moment. You know, there are plans, as I say, through care finders. It's a proposed, mm-hmm. uh, but the proof will be in the pudding, as they say. We'll have to see how all of that plays out and if there are sufficient numbers um, available to actually meet the needs of older people. Yep. I think also, uh, following on from speaking about pudding, um, I think the new service provider, um, like the new shopping around for service providers, is kind of a, you know, every piece of the pie to try to make a complete, um, a complete pie <laughs> of a care plan, essentially. Um, I guess, how do you also feel that this, like shopping around for providers, is more beneficial um, or less beneficial than having um, one complete package as it was before. Yeah. I don't know that... Uh, well, certainly what people have said back to us about that experience is that they find it very onerous. Yeah. You know, providers will offer the world and then you sign up with them and they say, no, I'm sorry, we don't have any support workers, you know, in your area yet, who speak your language yet, right. um, you know, who, who can come at those times mm-hmm. um, that you require. So they can, they can promise a lot, um, but in reality... Um, they may not be able to, to meet those promises. And older people will say, well, you know, I'll, I'll uh, meet with an interview, you know, three or four different providers. It becomes confusing, mm. uh, you know. So it, it, it's not easy. Uh, the new proposed support at home program, which is under consultation at the minute, um, you know, proposes a, a, a journey where you need the help you get in touch with my age care, my age care. Sorry, you have your assessed uh, needs uh, or your needs assessed, and uh, through one assessment service, we've currently got two. So it's through one assessment service, you find a provider, get the support you need, and as your needs change, your provider can, you know, meet those needs. Sounds fabulous. Again, <laughs> proof will be in the pudding. Yes, um, you know uh, that will be a much better seamless system, but there needs to be a lot of infrastructure in place to support that sort of ease for older people. Yeah, yeah I think even listening to that, um, I feel like that would be so overwhelming um, for a service user, for their families to have to shop around experiencing, um, you know, if they are disabled, if they're experiencing conscious illness. Um, I couldn't imagine the weight of just being able to go to one interview um, as opposed to having to shop around for for providers, oh, and no, uh, yeah, no, absolutely, Ines. And we've had, you know, home care package. Uh, people who are already receiving a home care package will know that, mm. um, you know, they have had to shop around for a provider. And of course, you know, the government then says, oh well, you know, it's consumer's choice. And if you're not happy with that provider, uh, you can change. So we create a marketplace and competition. It is not that easy to change. And you might have put a lot of energy and work into negotiating what you currently have with that provider, still be unsatisfied, and then they're saying, well, you know, change if you're not, if you're not happy. It's not easy to change and then go through that process again and potentially still not get what it is you need. Yeah. 
I, I, yeah. I can see that problem definitely be brought to the forefront in rural areas or places with, um, you know, culturally diverse backgrounds. Um, mm. Mm. I think also what the Royal Commission to Aged Care Quality and Safety 2018 to 21 outlines that, you know, Australia's had really poor governance and weak regulation of aged care. What does um, high-quality regulation and governance look like, and how do you think we can get there? Great question. (laughs) You know, (laughs) uh, yes, the the question of our times, really. Um, You know, quality regulation and governance, you know, means all stakeholders working in partnership. Mm -hmm. You know, and partnership is both sides having, uh, you know, their contribution equally valued. So being transparent, accountable... Uh, and again, most importantly, flexible, yep. able to respond to the identified needs. Um, the community needs to feel confident that organisations are well run and that older people and their representatives and uh, are partners in improving the delivery of care and services. So organisations need to be really open to feedback and complaints yep. and have you know robust quality improvement. Uh, Unfortunately, and you know, nobody comes to our service if they're happy. Yeah. <laughs> they to come to us if they've got problems. Um, but we often get, you know, defensive responses from providers as opposed to, you know, uh, open arms, welcoming that sort of feedback and changing their process to to really be responsive to the needs of older people. Yeah, I think you know, it's definitely not an easy task um, but it definitely is one that needs to be taken care of because we do need to look after the older people around us especially in incredibly vulnerable areas and situations and given the new funding model it seems like you know there are more opportunities for slipping through the cracks especially with the competitive marketplace um, I given that you know there are some gaps in needs and especially in the workforce, which I know you have spoken about previously and also the Royal Commission highlights um, needing to improve workforce conditions and capabilities, including new accreditation standards for workers. Um, How do you see, I guess, this new model and the new recommendations exacerbating the staffing issues that are already present in aged care and disability services? Mm, 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 mm. I I, I don't know if the new model will exacerbate it. Mm. Um, I think that the model has, you know, it's putting the the horse... The, the cart before the horse. Story. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, we do already have age care quality standards. Yep. You know, at the centre of which sits the consumer, mm-hmm. consumer dignity and choice. Um, you know, so we we do already have those words on paper. It's actualising that that has been a bit of a problem. Yeah. We've known forever that the best way to improve aged care services is to professionalise the workforce. Yeah. The Royal Commission has confirmed that has confirmed various other reports that have come before it. Um, and and, and professionalising the workforce, you, you know, will encourage people to work in the sector, create career pathways. You know, we need a workforce that is properly trained, yep. that is properly paid, that is registered. Absolutely. And, and that who are offered permanent positions in, in recognition of um, the fact that this is an important, highly skilled role. Mm-hmm. It's not a matter of you know, just kind of saying to, to older people, are you okay? You know, here's a cup of tea. Yep. <laughs> it, is a, it is a highly skilled role. And people don't, you know, as has been suggested, just do it from the goodness of their heart. It is a job. Yep. And it's a hard job. It is a hard job. 
Yeah. Um, COVID has just highlighted what what was an existing problem, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, yes, the, the new model, you know, uh, it, it can bring in the proposed improvements by all means, and, and it could potentially be uh, an improved model. But if there's insufficient numbers of workforce to implement, um, then I'm afraid we, we're back to square one, and yeah. older people won't be getting what they need. For us, the frustration is that uh, we have received increased funding as um, as part of the, the Royal Commission's recommendations, and we are very pleased that we can provide support to more older people. But if we're advocating for the older person to receive, you know, safe, quality care and services, but there are not enough staff working in the industry to provide that sort of support, yep. then there's nowhere to go, you know. The yep. workforce is, the, in our opinion, the issue of the time. Yep. I think without um, a workforce to implement these changes, it's like where is it really going to go? And I think being able mm-hmm. to look at the Royal Commission and look at um, different ways to support and advocate, um, I think that will be so vital to carry this through. And I think just to wrap up, um, I know that the Elder Rights Advocacy Service provides support to older people, their families and representatives. Would you mind just briefly speaking on um, how people can get in contact with the Elder Rights and Advocacy and what supports they provide? Yes, thank you, Inez. Um, no worries. <laughs> so, uh, elder Rights uh, Advocacy, we've been uh, providing free confidential and importantly independent service to older Victorians for 30 years now. Um, Our independence is of course very important because we don't work for the government, we don't work for providers, we work for older people and represent their perceived interests. Mm -hmm. We work at their direction um, and in support of their right to quality care um, that recognises and meets their diverse individual needs. Um, So people can contact us on 1800 700, 600, and speak with one of our intake advocates and together work out how the older person would like us to support them. And I say the older person, but of course I also mean their representatives, their yep. family members, their loved ones. Yep. Um, so we can provide uh, information on, on their rights and on services. And, and this is very self-empowering, of course. If people know, you don't know what you don't know. Once you know something, you are empowered and you can go out into the world and confidently, um, you know, seek what it is that you need. We can provide, of course, direct advocacy support. And we also have the Community Visitors Scheme. So we're also able in regional Victoria um, to uh, provide social contact and companionship to older people who, particularly through COVID, we know, are feeling more isolated and alone. Yep. Well, it sounds like an incredible service, and thank you so much again for joining me here today, um, and it was an incredibly insightful interview. So thanks for joining us, Deborah, on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. So if you have the good rest of your day. My pleasure, and thank you for inviting me. All the very best. No worries. Thank you. Uh, you just heard from Deborah Nicholl, the Programs Manager for Elder Rights Advocacy, which is a member of the Older Persons Advocacy Network. If you or a loved one needs support and advocacy, please contact Elder Rights and Advocacy for a free independent confidential advocacy service on 1800 700 600 and translators are also available. Thank you. Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, 
shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword. A 3CR supporter. Strong spirit, First Nations issues, families, people and stories from a First Nations perspective. Mondays at 1pm on 3CR. Proud black man, proud black man, it should not wonder. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. You're back on the 3CR Thursday Breakfast, and up next we'll be going to an interview with Malika. Thanks, Rosie. Um, we will be joined by Sasha and Greg from Blockade Australia to speak about climate activism. Sasha has been doing climate, anti-war and human rights activism for the last three years and has found her nation supporting direct action and has been arrested for the cause as well. Greg is a full-time supporter of Frontline Nonviolent Direct Action, and he's currently supporting Blockade Australia, who seek to use strategic nonviolent resistance to the colonial extraction project called Australia. Good morning, Sasha and Greg. Thanks for joining us this morning. Good morning. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah, good morning. Thanks again for joining nice and early today. Um, I guess jumping straight into it, could you share a bit more about the blockade last year and what has happened since? Uh, yeah, so the blockade took place on Waramai in a walkable country uh, at the world's largest coal port. Um, and it was a place that uh, Blockade Australia decided to use strategic nonviolent direct action, not just because coal is a terrible contributor to the climate emergency that we find ourselves in. Um, as most of our listeners, most of the listeners will likely know, uh, once we go past 1.5 degrees, um, uh, we, we are facing catastrophic uh, ecosystem collapse um, due to fossil fuel burning and the, the governments, uh, at least of the minority, also called the Western world, have failed to act. Uh, and that is because there is large, large amounts of profit to be made by a few people at the top at the expense of the rest of the ecosystem that we all rely on. Uh, so for a long time, some of us have been using uh, nonviolent direct action and we've been trying to foment the best way to use that strategically. Uh, and what we ended up deciding on was to um, target the Newcastle coal port, not just because of the coal that's exported from there that contributes to global warming, but also because it is an economic bottleneck. So just a few people um, with a little bit of love and commitment could cause some major uh, economic disruption to the Australian project because the Australian Colonial project is, of course, the problem. It's uh, for over 60,000 years there was sustainable governance on this continent, and then for the last 200 years there's been, uh, you know, a colonial system that has sought to extract and destroy the Earth's systems on this continent that has contributed to this climate collapse. 
Um, so we used the um, small to, to try and cost the Australian uh, project as much money as possible at a place where there's one coal line, uh, one train line going in and out, uh, and one port that we can get onto. And uh, we had Barnaby Joyce, the you know Deputy Prime Minister, call us um, uh, on air because we were costing so much money and the level of um, severe police repression that we face is also a testament to how much money we were costing the colonial project. And with enough pressure, hopefully we can force some change and get some real uh, ecosystem and climate justice from our governments. And um, so that's sort of what we've been up to and we're planning some stuff in the near future. Yeah, that's, um, that's really wonderful to hear, like, the impact of these actions are having. And I guess coming on from that, though, there were some not so great impacts of that, Sasha, which I guess you could share a bit more about. So could you tell us a bit more about um, what happened following and the impacts of having your car unfairly taken from your possession? Yeah, so I guess having my, you know, car taken away from me, um, that was a huge um, part of my independence that I had. And I was in a city that I, you know, was not, very um, well-known to. Um, I didn't know many people, um, especially within the actual city itself. And so when I had the car taken, I was literally, like, you know, um, sent out into the world without a phone, without a wallet, without a car, without a home. Um, It was only just super lucky that I had, um, you know, community around me that could support, um, support me. And through this whole, you know, up until last Friday when we had the court, um, you know, I've had a huge impact to, um, you know, my mental health, my lifestyle, um, you know, coming back to Queensland. It was, you know, thankfully Greg was able to, um, you know, help and assist with that. But, um, you know, I've had to rely as a really dependable person in my community, I've had to rely on other people um, to really help me out, Um and, yeah, you know, um, I've definitely seen um, such a good side of the community um, recently. Um, you know, I don't come from a wealthy family, um, and I've worked hard, you know, since I was 15, and I'm still paying the car off. So, um, you know, it's taken a huge toll. Um, but, yeah, um, and, you know, as well as the car, a lot of our mine and my partner's possessions were also in the car because we were travelling and, you know, most of the things that we just um, had, you know, on us were in the car um, and got kind of taken away as well. Um, luckily, I eventually, you know, had to keep fighting back and um, and hassling um, the police to, you know, give me my things back that weren't related to the, um, to the incident. But, uh, yeah, it was not easy, that's for sure. Yeah, that sounds incredibly challenging to have not just your car, but essentially your whole life, like everything you need to do your day-to-day living taken from you so quickly and so unfairly. And from what you've shared, it, it sounds like the police's power was used in a way that it was not intended to. Can you share a bit more about that kind of overreach on the police's behalf? Yeah, I mean, it was a huge... Um a huge misuse of, of power there. And what we saw was the police trying to take punishment into their own hands, um, even though I had been, um, you know, through court the day after I was arrested and I had been charged. The matter was finalised. 
Um, and yet, when I came out of the station, they said, nope, it's being held um, for further investigation, um, even though, you know, there was no investigation to be had. So, um, you know, they went through and um, searched the whole car, um, you know, fingerprinted DNA search, uh, and, you know, it was pretty much under the guise of this... Um, law that was literally written for drug and gang-related activity, um, which this was clearly not um, related to at all. Um, and so, you know, uh, it was, uh, you know, in court, it was a, it was clear that the police had overstepped um, and that it was an inappropriate, um, you know, use of the law that they were trying to use. Um, and, you know... Uh, yeah, I don't know, Greg, if you want to add anything else to that as well. Yeah, um, I'll just say one of, one of the things that really got to me was the invasiveness of the um, overage. So as Sasha said, she um, had been through court and found guilty when they then decided to seize her car. Um, and, and bear in mind, we've been taking place in some pretty minor non-violent direct actions. And the other thing that really uh, got to me, which I don't think of any coverage at all in the media, um, really, which is kind of... Um, abhorrent, but uh, Sasha was also given by the court at the time a non-association order with their partner. Um, so this is someone with whom they lived with and shared with uh, their lives with and now um, legally cannot contact or talk to a partner, and that's been some months. And I know um, for both of them that's been quite devastating. Um, and this is something that was brought in to break up bike gang activity, uh, and this was used several times to other people, no, no one's, um, you know, life partner, but um, the fact that the courts could just say, yeah, you know, as part of the punishment, you cannot associate with this person has been absolutely horrific. And the fact there's been no media coverage and we're just kind of allowing this to happen, uh, I think it bodes very poorly for what's going to happen in the future. You know, the, the material effects of climate collapse really hit people on this continent, just exactly what courts and governments might try to get up to. That's absolutely horrifying to hear and, yeah, like you said, Greg, absolutely abhorrent that it isn't getting more media coverage on that side of the story as well because um, what is clear here is that the impact is, is like, rippling to all areas of your life, Sasha. And I guess um, whilst the court has ruled in your favour and you have been able to get back your car, it sounds like the repercussions for climate activists that are trying to save our planet are quite large. Yeah, um, I guess that's such a good point. Like, mm. and I think it's, you know, it's the vital kind of ending to this kind of chapter or this, like, component of the chapter because it's set a precedent. Um, and I think, you know, uh, it means that the, the police can't do this again or can't try this again, you know, without um, huge, huge changes Um that, yeah, it, like, you know, and, and what I'm talking about is I was charged with two counts of attempt, you know, two attempt charges um, that I was not doing. Um, and yet, you know, because of the intimidation used and the lack of um, care and concern that they actually give to you um, while you're in custody, you know, and this story, like my story is not, um, it's not at all, you know, a new one. Um, it's just that it it hasn't been heard or or told by the the right person or the person that is people are willing to listen to. Um.
But, you know, it, it, I think the precedent that it sets um, in, ter- in telling the cops that they can't just write the law of themselves, they can't, um, you know, take the law into their own hands, um, they are there to, you know, serve and protect, but who are they doing that for, um, mm. you know? Uh, so, yeah, Greg, anything else to add again? Uh, I think that's a really good point about the serve and protect. Um, obviously, um, as, as the two weeks of uh, nonviolent direct action, well, we were doing an action every day blocking um, these coal trains from going in to, to extract from, from our earth. Um, as that effect went on, the political pressure grew and they actually brought in a police task force that was originally meant to target you know, drug gangs. And so they had to have... The, the police had to try and punish someone because it was simply costing the corporate elite too much money and too much pressure on them. So they were there to serve and protect the, the profit of the corporate elite who are, as, as you said before, um, destroying the planet which we were trying to protect. Uh, and so they've, they've taken Sasha's car who, mind you, was not found on the coal port. You know, she was convicted of attempting to get onto the coal port. Um, she hadn't even done, you know, much wrong at all. And uh, I would say even like um, I've got a master's in international relations and I can talk about international law you like, but trying to protect our common home, um, Sasha was actually doing us all a great service and we punished in such a, a way that, you know, to not be able to associate with your partner, I would call that clearly, you know, a fascist thing to be doing uh, and then not get media coverage because, the you know, it's, it's, it's quite horrible and, again, just bodes very poorly for what is now an emergency for, for our climate and our ecosystems. Yeah, thank you both for um, kind of sharing that and drawing more attention to what's going on. It is really important to know how these sorts of things have the ripple effects on people in community. And just being mindful of time as we wrap up is for people that are interested in following up and learning more about what's going, how can they kind of follow the both of you and the work you're doing? Yeah, well, obviously, we, we need people to get involved. Like, it's, um, you know, we, we need supporters from home. But, you know, this planetary emergency is not going to stop. The people in power with the money are not going to stop. They're, gonna, they're scared and they're going to keep making money until basically the ecosystems collapse and we all die. So we all need to make this a priority as best we can with our lives. Um, so we need people to get involved in whatever the way they can in um, supporting or being part of... Um, non-violent direct action. So Blockade Australia has a website. You can just Google Blockade Australia, it comes up. We're also on Facebook and we'll, we will be converging in Sydney. Um, plans are currently underway to do a, a large-scale blockade again in Sydney from the 27th of June. And people have said, why is so far away? Well, it takes that long to plan and organise and coordinate decent action. Um, so look out for us again in June. But please get involved in any way you can in any direct action for our planet. Um, because the people, the only thing that's going to stop people with a lot of money power is a lot of people with a lot of love. Um, and our home is now at stake. So whatever privilege level you have to get involved, please, please get involved because, um, your community, your planet, we all need you. So yeah. there's something for everyone to do. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you both, Sasha and Greg, for joining us this morning and, um, sharing a bit more about what's going on through the work you're both doing. Yeah, thanks so um, much for having me. It's really important um, and, you know, it's not too easy being in the spotlight, but, uh, yeah, it's really important to spread the word. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Sasha. Um, 
8.55 a.m. and we just heard from Sasha and Greg from Blockade Australia who joined us to talk about climate activism and the impact of a blockade activity that they did last year. Thanks, Malika, for that interview. And just before we go into our next interview, um, I'd just like to remind listeners that next week is Subscriber Drive. Um, so you can get uh, behind that by calling the station or going to our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash Subscriber Drive. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. And you're back on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. And up next, we'll be speaking with David Lindenmayer, Professor at the Fenner School of Environment and Society at ANU, an expert in forest ecology, resource management, conservation science and biodiversity conservation. And David is joining us today to discuss the science behind why the Victorian government must put an end to native logging. Welcome to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast, David. Thank you, um, so thanks so much for joining us. So um, we have spoken a few times on the program to organisations like Friends of the Earth, Gungara Environment Centre about activism and advocacy to protect native forests from logging. Um, but I was just wondering if you could kind of give us an overview of the current logging industry in Victoria. Okay, well, a couple of things. First of all, I'm not an activist. I'm actually a scientist. And, and we do a, a lot of long-term work on forest ecology, fire, and and increasingly economics. And so what we see in Victoria is an industry that's that's declining quite quite rapidly. And there are two two major areas where most of the logging in the state takes place. That's northeastern Victoria and the Central Highlands of Victoria. So the Central Highlands is where about sixty five percent of logging in the state takes place. And so these are areas around Warburton, Hillsville, Marysville, Powelltown, those kinds of areas. And it's mostly in what we call the mountain ash and the alpine ash forest. And most of the logging in those forests takes place through what's called clear cutting or clear felling. And that's where the entire area is cut. And then the merchantable trees are taken out. Then the logging flash, the tree heads, the lateral branches, the bark is burnt. And then the forest is regrown. The problem with it is that it has enormous negative impacts on biodiversity, on water, on fire proneness. Log forests are more likely to burn at high severity. And the, probably the most startling fact is that it, it actually makes very little money for the state. In fact, the, the office of the, um, the, the parliamentary budget office for the Victorian government actually indicates that Victoria would be about $192 million a year better off if it didn't log native forests, which is really quite remarkable. Mm. So that buys a lot of hospital beds, a lot of aged care places, a lot of teachers, a lot of nurses. And I think it's time really now for the Victorian government to think deeply about how it's spending its money and whether or not continuing to to subsidise the native forest logging industry is really appropriate in an economic and a social context. 
Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, it's really important, that point that um, this industry is being heavily subsidised by the state government. I was wondering if we could go a bit more into those adverse effects that you're talking about in terms of what happens to forests when they have been logged, those things like higher intensity bushfires that you were talking about, um, and we know that that's a huge issue. Um, yeah, how does that how does that affect the long-term um, ability of the forest to regenerate? Okay, so so in these these um, mountain ash and alpine ash forests, several things are happening when a forest is logged. The first thing is that the, the, the age of the forest is reduced to zero because it has to start regrowing from seeds. Okay, so several things happen when a forest is logged. The first the first thing is that the the, the soils are dried out. So we see, and that. That effect lasts for about 80 years, perhaps even longer. Mm. So the soils change. You lose a lot of nutrients, and the structure of the soil changes. What also happens then to the plants is really interesting. Some of the really important sprouting plants, such as tree ferns, are dramatically reduced. Now, they're important because they're part of the, the process of keeping the forest moist. We also lose some of the re-sprouting plant species such as musk daisy bush so the re-sprouting plants like tree ferns and daisy bushes are really really badly affected another thing that happens is that the large old trees the really big trees that store most of the carbon and then provide habitat for a whole range of animals especially animals that depend on hollows populations of those trees are dramatically reduced not only by the logging itself but they're also more like where they are retained. They're much more likely to die and collapse soon after logging's finished. Then we see one of the most sinister effects is that when the forest is regenerated, so seeds are sprinkled on the logged forest after it's been burnt. So you burn all the logging slash that's left over, and there's about 450 tonnes of logging slash that sits in a logging coop per hectare. When that logging slash is burnt, you create a bed of ashes and then you sprinkle the seeds, usually from a helicopter, into that bed of ashes and you regrow the forest. And after about seven years, that regrowth forest can be up to 10 metres tall and for about the next 30 years after that, that forest is actually very prone to very high severity fire. And so this is a really big issue when you have a lot of logging trees distributed through the landscape the landscape itself becomes very prone to more high-severity fire. And that's exactly what we saw after the Black, the Black Summer fires and also after the 2009 fires in Victoria. So what happens is that under all circumstances, log forest always burns at higher severity and intact forests. And this is really important because there's the severity of these fires, that's how much damage is done to the forest, affects the, the amount of heat produced and therefore it affects the security of human populations that might be close to those fires. So there's a real need to rethink what's happening here with the added fire burden occurring through logging across the landscape. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, really important. And that, that idea of, you know, these kind of logging coops scattered around the landscape kind of essentially being, or once they've been um, regenerated, but they're kind of these little tinder boxes that are ready to, um, you know, accelerate or um, 
cause higher intensity fires. It's actually quite terrifying as an outcome of, of that industry. Um, you also spoke there about some of the wildlife um, that is affected in these fires and by the logging itself. Um, and in 2019, some protections were introduced for the Leadbeater possum habitat to, pre to prevent logging of that habitat. Um, but in, and in 2021 and ongoing, the King Lake Friends of the Forest have taken Vic Forests to the Supreme Court to try and protect the greater glider. I was just wondering if you could talk about these animals and others um, that are impacted by logging. Okay, so... What we see from our long-term data that we've been gathering since the uh, early 1980s, and particularly since the late 1990s, we see that animals like the greater glider have declined by around about 80% in that time. So that means that 80% less sites are occupied by the greater glider now than than what we saw in 1997 when we we re reworked the way that we monitor the forest. In the case of Leadbeater's possum, what we call site occupancy, so the number of forest sites that we study has declined by 50%. Now, when we analyse those changes, what we discover is in the case of Leadbeater's possum, the amount of logging in the landscape influences whether or not we're likely to find a Leadbeater's possum on a site. So the more logging there is, the less chance we are to find the animal in the landscape. So logging is affecting, affecting that species directly through how much logging there is in the landscape, but it also affects how many big old trees there are in the landscape. And that's critical because these kinds of animals spend their, a large part of their lives living inside these big old trees. Mm. So logging also affects animals by removing their shelf sites, their den trees. And so this is a really major problem for a whole, a whole range of species that can't survive without access to shelter sites and den sites and big old trees. So this is a really big issue right across the forest is that the more the forest is logged, the less of these big trees we get, the less of these big trees we get, the less we get of those species that are dependent on those trees. And Leadbeater's possum, greater glider, yellow belly glider, mountain brush tail possum. There's a, whole, there's a whole suite of these wonderful animals that are threatened by the way the forest has changed with these intensive logging operations such as clear cutting or clear felling. Thanks, David. And just finally, we're running quickly out of time, but in the last minute, I'm wondering if you could speak to, you explained earlier on how expensive um, logging is actually for taxpayers and this, supporting this industry is. In your view, what should the government, government be doing right now to both end logging and protect native forests? What needs to happen now is that the Victorian government needs to transition very quickly into a plantation-only industry. So Victoria already produces about 3.9 million tonnes of plantation eucalypt pulp logs every year, but it exports three-quarters of that. We need to process that material in Victoria for Victorian jobs and make the forest industry a plantation-based industry and the native forest sector as a carbon store, a source of tourism, biodiversity conservation and water security. So the pathway to do this is very straightforward. It's just going to need some gumption from the Victorian government to do that, just like has happened in Western Australia where they're, they're moving out of the native forest industry on the 31st of December 2023. We need to do the same in Victoria. 
Great. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, David. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Just then you heard from David Linden-Mayer, Professor at the Fenner School of Environment and Society at ANU, joining us to discuss the science behind why the Victorian government must put an end to native logging immediately. And we are rapidly running out of time for this show, um, but we probably have time for a very brief rundown. So um, maybe I'll kick us off. So first up, we spoke with Josie Alec, a Gorama Marduthernia custodian from the Pilbara in Western Australia, about the Perdamon urea plant on that sacred country. We then spoke with Asher Wolf uh, about the lack of recognition and support for chronic illnesses and how this intersects with growing awareness of long COVID. And then we spoke about, sorry, <laughs> um, we spoke to Deborah Nicol, who's the Elder Rights Advocacy Program Manager, about local council changes to home, age and disability care services. And after that, we were joined by Sasha and Greg from Blockade Australia to speak about direct action and climate activism. And then finally, we heard from David Linden-Mayer about native logging in Victoria. And just um, to let listeners know, there's a festival for the forest this weekend, and you can find out about that um, by visiting the Victorian Forest Alliance. That is all we have time for on Thursday Breakfast this week. Bye. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.